0: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. To the inaugural Harvard Zaytuna Symposium. It is really my honor, as your sister in Islam, as the president of the Harvard Undergraduate Theologo Society, um, and as a huge fan of Zaytuna, and as a student of Harvard University, to welcome you to this momentous. Occasion. I would initially like to offer you some opening remarks. From there, we will transition uh, into some recitation of the Quran by Abdul Aziz. We will then transla- transition into a translation. We will then transition into opening remarks by Dr. Abdul uh, Rashid, who is the chaplain here at Harvard University. And we will then uh, transfer into a, a small piece of music prepared. Uh, and then we will start what you. Th- of all I've all been waiting for, which is our inaugural lecture. So first, I would like to quickly just introduce what this is. So many years ago, in 1636, Harvard University was founded as the first institution of higher education in the United States with a Puritan congregationalist foundation focused on training ministers and clergy. Today, Harvard is one of the most prestigious and highly rated universities in the world producing scholarship within an array of disciplines, while also bringing together students and academicians from around the globe. In its beginnings, Zaytuna College is the first and only Muslim undergraduate college in the United States with many similarities to Harvard's inception so long ago. We hope that this endeavor will mark the first step in establishing a long and beneficial relationship between Harvard and Zaytuna. On behalf of the organizing committee, We are delighted to have had the opportunity to play a role in fostering this new relationship in the pursuit of upholding truth and serving humanity through academia. We wish it may continue for years to come in the hopes of nurturing bonds of love, devotion, and learning. At this time, I'd like to recognize the organizing committee. They have put in hours uh, of time. I'd like to actually share how this program started. Um, I will (laughs) start by introducing And Hamdi, if you guys could please wave your hands or at least show yourself to the crowd. Where is Hamdi? Is Hamdi grabbing something or doing something right now? These individuals reached out to me with an idea. And when I first heard the idea, I told them, this is my dream. To be able to do this is my dream. I told them there have been many attempts. And oftentimes, uh, these things can start off as you know small sparks of energy and eventually die down. But I think it was with taisir, it was with righteous intentions, that step after step after step, we saw this coming to fruition. And it is really only by the barak of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you are all gathered here today to establish something so momentous as this. I'd like to also introduce the organizing committee members on behalf of Zaytuna. Fatima, if you can raise your hand or show yourself to the crowd. There she is. <laughs> and Danny in the back, also a senior at Zaytuna who has been critical in helping us. I'd like to introduce the master students who are part of the organizing committee. We have um, Tulaib, who is a PhD um, in Quranic studies here at Harvard. Uh, and we have Amin Quraishi who is here with us from Japan uh, at Harvard Divinity School. Could we please offer them a round of applause for helping us put this together? I'd like to just say that this is a gift And I pray that we can all be, sorry, that we can all be lights in an ebony night of sort. I think we all can relate to what that means and hopefully leave here as facilitators, as witness uh, to the power of what um, the Islamic tradition holds and what it can offer to the modern world. Um, With that, I'd like to invite Aziz to come offer some recitation uh, and then we will transition into translation. Thank you.
1: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم إن الذين يتلون كتاب الله وأقاموا الصلاة وأنفقوا وأنفقوا مما رزقناهم سرا وعلانية يرجون تجارة لن تبور ليوفيهم أجورهم ويزيدهم من فضله إنه غفور شكور وَالَّذِي أَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ هُوَ الْحَقُّ مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ بِعِبَادِهِ لَخَبِيرٌ بَصِيرٌ ثم أورثنا الكتاب الذين اصطفينا من عبادنا فمنهم ظالم لنفسه ومنهم مقتصد ومنهم سابق بالخيرات بإذن الله ذلك هو الفضل الكبير جنات عدن يدخلونها يدخلونها يحلون فيها من أساور يُحَلِّلُونَ فِيهَا مِن أَسَاوِرَ مِن ذَهَبٍ وَلُؤْلُؤًا وَلِبَاسُهُمْ فِيهَا حَرِيرٌ وَقَالُوا الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ الَّذِي أَذْهَبَ الْحَزَنَ
2: In the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful. Surely those who recite the book of God and perform the prayer and expend that which we have provided them secretly and in public, look for a commerce that comes to naught, not to naught. That he may pay them in their full wages and enrich them of his bounty. Surely he is all forgiving, all thankful. And that we have revealed to thee of the book is the truth. Confirming what is before it, God is aware of and sees his servants. Then we bequeath the book on those of our servants we chose. But of them some wrong themselves, some of them are lukewarm, and some are outstrippers in good works by the leave of God. That is the great bounty. Gardens of Eden they shall enter. Therein they shall be adorned with bracelets of gold and with pearls, and their apparel there shall be of silk. And they shall say, Praise belongs to God, who has removed all sorrow from us. Surely our Lord is all-forgiving, all-thankful.
0: Right. right, I'd now like to introduce Zoe Zhao. He's a pianist from Boston University who will be playing for us Mozart, Fantasia, and C minor. Can we please have one more round of applause for that beautiful piano piece? And you wanna know the truth? Uh, There was no practice, there was no (laughs) preparation. Uh, I just invited Zui to uh, play less than an hour and a half ago. So that just speaks to Zui, and we thank you and we appreciate your time, thank you. I now would like to introduce Chaplain Khalil uh, Abdul Rashid to offer some opening remarks for this uh, event. Chaplain uh, has been a pillar for this community. Him and his wife, Chaplain Samia, offer so much, uh, both in terms of moral support, spiritual support. And so it's really my honor to be welcoming my mentor um, to the stage. Thank you.
3: Good evening, everybody. Peace and blessings be with all of you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar I'm not going to take uh, a long time, uh, so um, I won't be speaking in the spirit of chaplaincy today. Um, but what I hope to do uh, is just to remind myself and everyone here uh, of, of, of what it is... Um, that we are supposed to be doing and to remind us of what, uh, what it means uh, to participate in a symposium uh, like this. Um, certainly, on behalf of Chaplain Sami and myself, we uh, extend a tremendous humbled welcome to Sheikh Habza Yusuf, uh, to Dr. Aisha, Dr. Rayan, of course, Dr. Omar Qureshi, Sheikh Mashuk, to all of the distinguished students of Zaytuna. Uh, to our community, and to our campus. And it is really important just to keep uh, something in, in our frame of mind, in our backgrounds, in our foregrounds, uh, in our hearts, and minds, and spirits. Uh, and that is what happens when we uh, encounter um, uh, knowledge and ilm. There's a difference between information uh, and ilm, ilm is, an, is, a, is a term of sacred knowledge. Uh, and we meet all the time, we have different encounters, uh, but there are two ways to meet. You can meet, uh, you can have an encounter, and then you part and you go back, uh, and there's not really uh, much of an impact that it has, uh, similar to what's called the Mejma al-Bahrain, the place where the two seas meet, uh, and there's no overlap. But then there's the other encounter, where you encounter things in your environment, uh, you encounter knowledge specifically and people of knowledge, um, and you take from them, and in the spirit of what the Qur'an talks about, the honeybee, you, know, you go from flower to flower. Right? And you take and you absorb. Uh, and the metaphor or the example of the honeybee is what I'd like to leave with all of us today and and set the stage. That the honeybee, particularly the Quranic example of the honeybee, is really important. Uh, that we, our pr- role in engaging uh, in the world, particularly as Muslims, is such that we are supposed to be the kind of people that engage, that benefit, that absorb, uh, and that give back, that produce. Um, First, Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, uh, that the honeybee has been commanded to go and to derive from different flowers, different fruits, go to different places, learn different things. ingest, uh, absorb, uh, consume, if you will. take things in. So you learn, you benefit, you sit with teachers, you sit uh, you meet people, and you absorb. But not just absorb, but you digest. And that digestion then becomes something different. And so we are meant to not just uh, take in information, we are meant to produce something new from the experiences that we have, particularly with our teachers. And this format in tonight's lecture by Sheikh Hamza and the guests that we have here, uh, these are uh, teachers of ours and they represent the teachers in our tradition. And this symposium represents the teachings of our tradition in dialogue and discussions. And this is really important in a climate where there's a lot of polarization and not a lot of desire to sit at the table and have dialogues and discussions and understand how to come to to, to terms with each other, how to encounter difference, and how to respectfully uh, navigate those differences. And then how to produce something for the world to benefit in the spirit of the honeybee, the product that comes out is is something that is of healing to not just one community, but to everybody. So our hope and our purpose for what may blossom uh, from this inaugural lecture, this inaugural symposium, is that we may be inspired, we may be moved, we may be shaken, we may be stirred, we may be uh, 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 uplifted to be able to improve ourselves so that we 'll be in a better position to walk the path of being subjects who produce a product that is healing to the maladies uh, that afflict our communities our our country and even our own selves and so uh, I'll leave you with the advice of my, 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 my first teacher, the very first person in my life, when I was a young man, and I was 19 years old, who was, taught me the very first lessons of Islam, and he was uh, he, he was teaching, uh, and he was dying of cancer, he was dying of bone cancer, and he used to come to class, he was never late. I was the one at 19 who was late, he was never late. And he used to say that, you know, this this, uh, what you're learning is not information. What you're learning is prophetic bequeaths, knowledge from the prophets. And we have a responsibility to pass that on and we pass it on not just through words, but with beings who we are. And so I will close so that we can uh, understand better what that means. Uh, I wish all of you, uh, a, a warm welcome this evening. May Allah Ta'ala be with you and bless you. And may we help help us unite ourselves so that we may be standard bearers uh, in this life and in the life to come. Uh, to what is healing and what is beautiful and what is praising. Thank you very much. Good evening.
0: The inaugural lecture, or the lecture that will happen with the symposium, intends to create a space to feature prominent scholars and public intellectuals from each institution as an opportunity for the whole community to learn and gain knowledge. This year, the inaugural speech features Sheikh Hamza Yusuf presenting the arts of understanding, prerequisites for unlocking the Islamic tradition. He is the co-founder and president of Zaytuna College and arguably the most influential Islamic scholar in the West. But I think for the majority of us in the room, this is a man who has shaped who we are, who has brought us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and who are, we are incredibly blessed to have joining our community tonight. Please welcome Sheikh Hamza Yusuf.
4: wife usually does this Bismillahirrahmanirrahim sayyidina Muhammad wa wa sallam tasliman alhamdulillah alhamdulillah nahmaduhu praise god in a place where god uh, is meant to be praised because the founders of this place founded it as a place to actually produce ministers that would go and minister the community so Harvard's grown much since those early days. Um, I, first of all, I'm very honored to be back here. I, I haven't been here probably in over 30 years, but I, have, I, ha, I did um, come and lecture before and had a very interesting time and uh, had a wonderful time in the bookstores, and I hope they're still there because I know they're disappearing these days. Uh, everybody's going on Amazon, which is not a wise thing to do, but... People are doing it anyway. Um, so alhamdulillah, I, I want to say that this is, a, I think, a wonderful thing that our students We're a fledgling school in California. And Harvard is a well-established uh, bastion, really, of knowledge on many, many different levels. So we're, we're humbled and uh, honored to be here. And we're certainly grateful for Sister Jenna for doing the hard work with her team. Certainly, very, very grateful to Dr. Khaled Rwahib, somebody I know all the faculty at Zaytuna uh, hold in high esteem for his extraordinary scholarship and uh, contribution to this tradition. So I think Harvard's very fortunate to have somebody of his caliber uh, here. Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim Before I get into what I wanted to talk about, I just, I know many of you know this already, but for those of you who don't, The second president of uh, Harvard University, his name was Charles Chauncey, uh, and he was uh, 1592 to 1672. In the uh, the mid-17th century, he became a professor and uh, the president of the school. He had studied in Cambridge in England. And obviously, as you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts was meant in some ways to reflect Cambridge England. The the great hope that the Americans would develop great schools and colleges like Oxford and Cambridge. But what's interesting is uh, Chauncey boasted that he knew more Arabic than any other person in the American colonies. And he's the one that introduced Arabic into Harvard. I was really struck by the fact that Noah Webster, who's, who's one of the unsung founding fathers, He's really the founder of the American language in many ways because he really wanted to have a language that was independent of English English and to create an American English. Very proud of it. There's a very interesting book called um, Founding Grammars, which is about this fight between uh, Noah Webster and Lindsley Murray. Uh, Murray was an Anglophile. He was an American who ended up going back to England, but he wanted to see an English English established in America. So this is a classic problem with linguists. Uh, Webster was more of what we would call a descriptivist. And Lindsay was a prescriptivist. And we're still having these debates today, believe it or not. Uh, the Kufans and the Basarans had these debates. The Kufans are closer to the, uh, the uh, descriptivists, whereas the Basarans were more descriptivists. So they did not like this kind of open-ended approach to language. He studied in Cambridge at a time there was a fellow in Cambridge, Edward Pocock, at the same time. Pocock had gone to Aleppo and spent four years studying Arabic and bringing a lot of uh, manuscripts back to Cambridge, and these became, to Oxford, I I think. These became the Pocock Library. So there was a great interest in all things Arabic. Uh, Noah Webster, who wrote his book, in, uh, it was published in 1828, he tried to prove that English, all languages derive from Hebrew. But what he found, that he, he found more relations to Arabic than to Hebrew in the book. So you will find, and I don't know where they got typesetters typesetting in the 1820s in America, the Arabic uh, typesetting was quite extraordinary. So he has things like cave, that clearly came from calf, um, earth, that clearly came from ard, uh, baby, that clearly came from babus, so he has all these funny derivatives back to Arabic, so that's, uh, we still use Webster's Dictionary, so little, that was a little aside, a little, uh, little, little footnote for those of you who might not have been aware of that. So what, what I wanted to talk about, the arts of understanding, prerequisites to unlocking the Islamic tradition. The Islamic tradition is not an easy one to unlock for a number of reasons. One, it has a very, very difficult language at its foundation, which is the Arabic language. Arabic, I call it what the Arabs call um, great poetry and great ority, uh, the easy impossible. There are elements to Arabic that are extraordinarily accessible, People can learn it quite quickly. It has amazing patterns. You can learn these patterns. But the older you get, the more you realize how impossible this language is to actually master. And this is why in Mauritania, they say, No one can really know all of Arabic except a prophet. Um, it has one of the richest vocabularies in the world. It's also retained qualities of ancient languages. And due to the Qur'an, it has not developed in the same way that many other languages have developed. Like English, for instance, we once had a dual in English. Uh, We also had inflections, so we had an inflected language. Um, A lot of that has been removed from the English language. So Arabic is very difficult, and uh, there's a very interesting view about um, you know, what the first language was in the Islamic tradition. There are different opinions about it. Was it Arabic? Uh, was it Syrianiya? Uh, was it um, uh, some unknown language? Uh, Imam Asiyuti says, One of the strangest things is that the, the questions in the grave will be in Syrianiya. Well, there's a relationship, obviously, between Syriania, these Semitic languages, uh, with Hebrew and Arabic. So why am I so interested in the liberal arts? Partly because I was brought up in that tradition. My father was a liberal artist. He was very committed to liberal arts. He'd studied in, in uh, Colombia when John Erskine had introduced a core curriculum, and uh, Mortimer Adler was there. And the, the great uh, Mark Van Doren, who wrote a book called Liberal Education, worth reading if you can find it. But I grew up in this hearing from my father, these sayings, especially the importance of these fundamental knowledges, that without them, it becomes very difficult uh, to penetrate pre-modern works. Well, when I, when I became Muslim and went over to the Middle East, and I started studying, particularly with Mauritanians, what really struck me was their emphasis on the same things that my father had talked about in Latin and Greek. Um, Things like the importance of grammar, the centrality of logic, the importance of rhetoric. These were all things that were really emphasized. And then as, as I grew into understanding the Islamic tradition more and more, what I realized is it really was a parallel tradition of liberal arts alongside Uh, the Western tradition. So where do they come from, these arts? They're surrounded in mystery. The obviously Eurocentric view would like to claim that they came from Greece. But we know that the ancient Indians were involved in grammar. They had their uh, types of logic. They were certainly uh, understood what beautiful language was. But very often it's associated with Pythagoras of Samos. He's shrouded in mystery himself, because most of the writings about him are 200 years after he died. But he uh, was certainly very interested in the mathematical arts. Uh, This is a, a beautiful painting that I'm sure all of you are familiar with, The School of Athens. Shows Plato and Aristotle, Plato looking up to the heavens, Aristotle with his hand towards the earth. This idea of these two approaches, the, uh, the one, uh, the Platonic, which is really to study the heavens, and then the Aristotelian, that we should study the earth, and the idea that we need both of these. What's interesting is they have Averroes there, and he's kind of looks like he's maybe cheating there with uh, Pythagoras. you know, He's definitely trying to catch some some knowledge from, uh, from what's being written on that, that page. Uh, so, this is uh, really one of my favorite pictures. It's a young man, he's a student, he probably looks like he's, you know, he's a beardless student, so he's probably early adolescence, maybe 13, 12, 13. Most people finish, who did go to college, finished by 15, generally, um, at that time but he's being led into the six liberal arts by grammar. They're personified as beautiful women, the idea that the young man should pursue them like he would pursue a beautiful woman with great passion, great desire, and, uh, and uh, purpose. If you look, the, uh, there's symbols that go with the art. So for instance, you can see the woman holding the scorpion. The scorpion was actually for dialectic. Sometimes it was symbolized with a, a, uh, a snake, but uh, it was for dialectic, which is, you know, when somebody has a good proof, it's like getting stung by a scorpion. You have to submit to it. Uh, and then over the seven is prudentia. And prudentia is wisdom, prudence. In, uh, in Arabic, Imam al-Ghazali in the Mizan al-Amal, he talks about the hikmah nadhariyah and hikmah amaliyah. Hikmah nadhariyah is what we would call in, in uh, Latin prudentia, prudence. So the, 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 the wisdom, the idea of wisdom is practical wisdom, Hikma amalia, as opposed to theoretical wisdom, which is Hikma, what the Greeks called Sophia. Uh, as opposed to phronesis. These were the terms. So these are very important distinctions. So she is basically the embodiment of phronesis. When, when we, you know, if, if, a, if, if a a physician is sued, they will have testimony from people who will testify what a prudent doctor would have done in the situation, practical wisdom. And so Prudentia has really got her her bow there, because the idea is that wisdom enables you to hit the target. And in Greek, amartia, New Testament Greek, amartia, in Hebrew, in Arabic, and in Old English, the terms for sin are all archery terms, which mean to miss the mark. So when when you sin, it's actually... This is the Socratic idea that it's actually ignorance, that when people behave wrongly, they do so out of ignorance. They, mis- they mistook an apparent good for a real good and they went after it, whether it was pleasure or something else. So these liberal arts which uh, emerge in our civilization and they are taught and embodied in these extraordinary universities like the University of Paris, Oxford, Cambridge. And then they come to the United States, Harvard, 1636, Princeton, Yale. These are the great um, civilizational uh, entities. So what's the history of the liberal arts in the Muslim world? Well, there's debate about where the... The university, the idea of a university begins. But the, the Arabic word for university is usually jamia, which means comprehensive. So it's, it's the comprehensive studies. Sometimes they use kulliya, which is more for college, but again, it has the idea of the universal, the kulliya. And so the idea is that you should be studying holistically. One of the things that C.S. Lewis, in his extraordinary work on the discarded image, he laments the loss of holism, in our understanding of the world, in our understanding of education. We now study all these disparate subjects, but don't really have any way of pulling them together. I mean, the physicists are looking for this theory that's going to make everything make sense. They're looking for a holistic view in physics. But what about a holistic view that ties everything together? Because the ancients really looked at the world that way. They saw everything as being related to everything else. They didn't see any... They did not see any fissures in the creation of God. They saw that it was all somehow united. So Zaytuna College, which we named Zaytuna after, was founded in 737. It was actually preceded by the great university in qairawan which... Be, which uh, after some uh, Tunisians fled to Fez during some civil strife, they moved into a quarter of Fez called the Qarawiyin, which means the people from Qairawan, from Tunis. Well, there was a woman there, Fatima Al Fihriya, who inherited a massive amount of money with her sister Maryam from uh, her father, who was a, uh, a Tunisian a merchant. And I think. A lot of Western people don't know how many great institutions were built by women because they did get inheritance in the Islamic tradition. In fact, as late as the late 19th century, if you read um, Florence Nightingale's, um, her travel log to Egypt, she actually studied the inheritance laws and was upset that we didn't have more progressive laws like these in, in, in England. So she was quite struck by uh, the inheritance law. She actually learned quite a bit. I actually wrote an article many years ago called Florence of Arabia uh, you might want to take a look at. Um, she, she actually went into a mosque and, uh, in, in Cairo and she said, I kept hearing my heart, she was a Unitarian, she said, I kept hearing my heart say, turn to Mecca, turn to Mecca. And I felt as if I'd found the religion I was finally looking for. And then these men shooed her out. And she said, Oh, if only there was a place for women in this religion. <laughs> I could say I found my home. Quite sad. Uh, in any case, I've seen those men who do that. You know, they don't always just shoo women out. They shoo men out sometimes, too. In any case, uh, Fl- uh, Florence, wonderful lady. She was quite a theologian. People don't know she actually uh, she edited Jowett's translations of Plato. So she's quite a stunning scholar in her own right. She also introduced statistics. These are all asides. She introduced st- statistics into uh, medical studies. So That, believe it or not, is a, uh, somebody who I should know, but I don't really know. But it is a younger version of the person standing before you. Um, I'd like to talk to him personally, but don't have a chance. So I'll leave it at that. But I was fortunate enough to actually sit on the chair of grammar in the Qarawiyyin, uh, where we were studying the Ajarumiyya, and the reason, as George Muqtisi shows in The Rise of Colleges, they called it a chair, was because the only one that got to sit on the chair was the teacher. So when you talk about chair of the department, that's why they call it a chair. So that actually came from the Muslim world. Al-Azhar University, which, interesting enough, was founded by the Fatimiyah, uh, which was a uh, part of the Shia tradition, and then later on, when Salah din al-Ayubi comes, he, he uh, makes it a Sunni tr- uh, bastion. Uh, it, it has an extraordinary history and is still one of the largest universities in, in the world. Uh, it's, it's quite extraordinary. The University of Timbuktu, which I actually visited, is amazing in Sankuri, This is in... Uh, if you read uh, Rodney's book on how Europe underdeveloped Africa, a lot of it deals with uh, this area of Africa. But... Um, If you haven't read it, there's a beautiful book called, uh, pardon my French here, The The Badass Librarian of Timbuktu, uh, which is about how this man here saved all the manuscripts when ISIS showed up. And it was done with the Germans who sent him canisters, and they were able to put them into waterproof canisters and sail them down uh, to Mopti to prevent them from being burnt by these fanatics. So he's an amazing man. And we don't even know what's in a lot of these places. David King reminds us that there are tens of thousands of manuscripts that have never been read yet. So he says we really don't even know what they knew in mathematics, let alone in other subjects. The Zahri is another one. So now just look at the subjects. So obviously, Revelation is central, it's central to the Jewish tradition, to the Muslim tradition, and to the Christian tradition. But how do we understand revelation? Uh, Augustine wrote a very beautiful book on, on Christian doctrine, making an argument that, that it was absolutely necessary to know these arts before you actually interpret revelation. We have these uh, ministers in, in some places, you know, in, in uh, I mean, very often their families are their only flock. But I mean, these are people that really have not studied grammar, and yet they're reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible. Uh, if, you, if you do read the Bible, you should know what a conditional sentence is. It's very important. You could, you could really mistake what you think God is saying if you don't know grammar. So grammar is very important. So the, these revealed religions put an immense emphasis on grammar, and none more so than the Muslims, because much of the Jewish emphasis comes after they begin to interact with the muslims so you will see the first jewish hebrew dictionaries come after they're introduced into dictionary making by the muslims it's quite stunning how heavily indebted much of the jewish tradition is and the 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 the, the jewish scholars will admit this and do so in their writings which is why much of that great uh, period, they wrote in Arabic as opposed to writing in Hebrew. So Musha bin Mamun is often read in Arabic because he originally wrote many of his treatises in Arabic. So you have this revealed religion, then how do you understand it? Well, human beings are divided into these two ways of knowing the world. One is the trivium and the other is the quadrivium. And, and basically, this is the idea of quality and quantity. So the qualitative sciences. And I'm using science in scientia in the the old pre-modern way, not in the modern way that we've reduced it to material sciences. Um, Grammar was seen as a ilm, as a science. So grammar, logic, and rhetoric, this was the triad, the thaluth in Arabic, uh, sina'at al-thalath. And the most important was considered grammar uh, because without it, you could not go to the other two. And then the idea of revealed religion, you had law, jurisprudence, theology, exegesis, readings, the qira- qiraat, prophetic traditions, many other subjects, but I'm giving a, just an overview. The Muslims were, became obsessed with the quadrivium. They, they really got very interested. They got from the Greeks and from the Indians also, because they were syncretists. Wherever they went, they would take the books, translate them into Arabic, into Persian, and study them, and... and For a long time, there was a belief simply that they were the caretakers. This was a a common trope in in Western uh, academia, that they simply held the Islamic tradition uh, in in abeyance, uh, the, the Western tradition. And then at a certain point, they just handed it over to Europe. And then Europe, of course, took it to another level. Well, the truth is far, far different from that. Uh, George Sartan, who was here at Harvard, wrote an extraordinary history of science. Uh, two volumes of that six-volume work deal almost entirely with Muslim scientists and their contribution to science. So there was heavy contribution in, in all of these areas. Harmony is very interesting because Al-Farabi wrote a book that's amazing. It's called Kitab al-Musiq al-Kabir, the big music book. Um, and they were inventing instruments, Adding the famous addition of the the fifth uh, for the quintessence, you know, because a lot of this was based on pre-modern uh, ideas like the four elements. So the the oud, there was a fifth string added to it, and then you had the sixth string added with the guitarra, the Spanish guitar, um, six being a perfect number. Um, so very interesting things with that harmony. So here. This was the idea that if you, if you mastered these sciences, then, you, you, then the grammar would give you facts, data terms, basic skills. The logic would give you the ability to, to know the what and the why of things. And then wisdom, rhetoric was the proper use of it in conveying it to others, persuading others of the truth. Very important. Many, many examples of this. Uh, in in we have many many uh, little couplets and things like this uh, telling us of the importance of grammar um uh things like in rumta idrak al ulumi bi sur'atin fa alayka bin nahw qurimi wa mantiqi hadha idrak al hadha mizan al uquli murajjihun wa al in Tanteki. so Saying, like, if you want to learn quickly, then study sound, uh, study logic and sound grammar, because logic will teach you how to think properly, and grammar will uh, rectify your tongue. وَمِنِ الْبَيَانِ خُدْ دَلِيلًا لِلْحِجَةِ And from rhetoric, take a delil for your intellect you will be elevated amongst people whenever you speak. So there's the trivium right there. So, and there are many, many uh, Arabic uh, couplets or triplets that talk about that. The quadrivium I'm not going to go into. It's a fascinating subject, and obviously extraordinarily developed in our civilization. Uh, Leibniz uh, and, uh, and Newton adding... Uh, an, an extraordinary tool to really facilitate rapid um, uh, works in math. The, uh, the great... Um, he won the Nobel Prize for Electro-Quantum uh, Dynamics. Uh, uh, Richard Feynman. Uh, in Cal Poly... I actually listened to his lectures. They were fascinating. But in Cal Poly... He, he described physics as the expanding horizon of our ignorance. But he... Uh, he said that uh, he always taught the freshman seminar using only geometry and, and he, in physics. And a lot of the students hated it because they all knew calculus was much easier. He said, well, the reason I do this is sometimes you get into a horse and buggy for the sheer enjoyment of the ride. <laughs> so, and MIT is still very serious about geometry. So what was the purpose of all this? Like, why were they doing all this study? What was the purpose? Well, uh, one of the, our great, great scholars, Abu Nasr, uh, uh, Imam al tusi Nasir al tusi who, interestingly enough, died the same year that Aquinas did. Uh, he was a Shia scholar, but the, the Sunnis always uh, taught his books. Uh, in the Ottoman, great Ottoman tradition, the Kurdish tradition, they taught uh, Tijrid al-Aqaid, his Ilm al was taught many, many other books because he was a genius and he was well worth studying. So he says in his Nasirian Ethics, Akhlaqi Tusi, which was written in Persian, although translated about 300 years ago into Arabic and really an excellent translation. He says basically that happiness is of three kinds, psycho-spiritual, bodily, and civic happiness, which relates to the society and civilization. As for the psycho-spiritual happiness, it has already been discussed and its subtypes delineated. It is attained through five means. First, character development, (tarbiyah); Second, mantiq, he says. Which mantiq was short for the trivium. So it's used often they will use, this is ittaq al-baad al-kul. In Arabic rhetoric, they would use one to indicate uh, everything. It's a type of uh, majaz. Uh, it's a uh, juzi, you know, the juziya, right? So, so he says, um, and then uh, mathematics, which was the quadrivium, real fourth natural sciences, because they saw that 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 you had to have the methodology before you could study the sciences, and fifth metaphysics. So the highest was metaphysics. They were taking the student to metaphysics, which they saw. This is book 10 of Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics, that this was the highest thing that a human being could do is to contemplate reality with a sound mind, a free mind, the mind that had been freed by deep training so that it, it wouldn't be fooled by its own machinations. Education must be undertaken in this sequence so that the benefit may be speedily accrued, in both abodes. And he wrote a beautiful, uh, uh, you know, book, which which this is from, which deals with the personal ethics, and then uh, economia, which is economics, and then finally moral, uh, moral, uh, the ethics of the society, civics, so politics. And it's interesting because. Historically, until the late 19th century, economics was part of moral philosophy, so they did not separate it. It's one of the great tragedies of modern uh, uh, studies is that economics is no longer studied as a moral philosophy, Uh, and this is partly because the the people that study it don't have morals, and they really don't want to, to learn them, so they're forced to actually think about what they're doing. Yeah, so... I mean, somebody asked me once, uh, a, a, a Saudi man asked, asked somebody at Harvard, he was a professor, he said, do you, do you teach business ethics there? Do you teach it? Just, that was just after 2008, you know, because I don't know if you know this, but uh, the great Ponzi schemer, Madoff, like he actually donated to the business ethics school there at uh, Toshiba. So, my goodness. (laughs) That's, That's like penance. So then he says, as for bodily happiness, it is attained through the sciences pertaining to the ordering of body state, health, such as remedies, preservation of health, and the science of nurturing, which are encapsulated in medicine. So medicine is actually not to manage diseases, which is modern medicine. right? They manage diseases. They don't really cure people. And unless they're ER doctors, they're really good. They're the best, right? But, but a lot of these doctors, unfortunately, become drug pushers for pharmaceuticals, right? Did you know that? Everybody's <laughs> silent. Oh, no, that can't be true. I just went to my doctor. Now I've got, I have my, I have my albuterol. I'm not being serious, facetious. I've got my albuterol here, so, yeah. <laughs> but they're managing my asthma. They haven't cured it. <laughs> so you keep paying them. Yeah. That's what they love long term patients. That's why they call them patients. You're just <laughs> patient with your illness. Yeah. <laughs> but they actually saw health was, was a good thing, <laughs> that you should be healthy. Like, you know, we look around in America. People don't look very healthy. They don't sound healthy. Yeah. So how do how we restore health to a, to, a, to a society? That's a good question. This is what they were interested in. This also includes knowledge of astrology. Now, they understood that there's two types of astrology that they were dealing with. One of them was more about the, uh, what they called the amzija. The other, predictive astrology, they all said was prohibited. So they did believe that there was a relationship to uh, times of birth and things like that with uh, the person and their health and things like that. So then he says, civic happiness, this is about politics, is found upon the science related to the ordering of the affairs of the community, the state, daily life, and societies, such as sacred knowledge including sacred law, theology, prophetic reports, exegesis. It also includes worldly disciplines such as literature, rhetoric, grammar, calligraphy, arithmetic, geometry, calculation, and the like. The benefit of each discipline is in accordance with its appropriate place, and God knows best what is right. So now look at just Thomas Aquinas almost at the same time the seven liberal arts do not adequately divide theoretical philosophy. But as Hugh of St. Victor says, seven arts are grouped together, leaving out certain other ones. Because those who wanted to learn philosophy were first instructed in them. And the reason why they are divided into the trivium and the quadrivium is that they are, as it were, paths introducing the quick mind to the secrets of philosophy. This is also in harmony with the philosopher's statement in the metaphysics, meaning uh, Aristotle that we must investigate the method of scientific thinking before the sciences themselves. And the commentator, meaning Averroes, Ibn Rushd, says in the same place that before all the other sciences, a person should learn logic, meaning the trivium, which teaches the method of all the sciences, and the trivium concerns logic. The philosopher also says in the ethics that the young can know mathematics but not physics because it requires experience. So we are given to understand after logic we should learn mathematics, and with the quadri- which the quadrivium concerns. These then are the paths leading the mind to the other philosophical disciplines. So it's, it's the exact same flow of, it's, it's quite extraordinary that the, both the Muslim world and, and, and the traditional uh, Christian world had the same basic idea of what education was for and where it should lead to, but also why. And, and the reason is this. They saw the three most important sciences in the world were medicine, law and politics, and theology and philosophy. And the reason that this is so is they understood that we're, we have a body, we have a social body, and we have a soul. The body has to be physically well so that the soul can thrive. One of the interesting things that the Taoists say is that the reason the Taoists do so many life extension exercises like Qigong is because they, they actually say that you owe it to your soul to live a long life because it will take that long to rectify your soul before you leave the body. So it's very important that you take care of your soul because you have this time allotted to you, and it's very important to preserve that as best you can, that there's an element of choice in good health. Law and politics was to heal the social body from its ailments, and then theology and philosophy, ethics, and psychology were to heal the mental and spiritual body from their ailments. So this, this was the doctor, the lawyer, and the theologian. These were the great um, medieval things. So now I'm gonna quickly get into just an example. So in the Islamic tradition, and this is, these are the arts that I feel when we come into the Islamic tradition, and I'm speaking to the students of Islamic uh, knowledge uh, in the audience. I know there's some other people here, but in the Islamic tradition, one of the difficulties that we have to remember is this is a sequential tradition. Like in mathematics, mathematics is sequential knowledge. You have to learn at each stage. If you don't learn it sequentially, it's going to break down, which is why the Japanese model is so much better than the the American model, because you have to get 100 on on every test until they put you to the next level. Because if you take somebody who got a D in arithmetic, and you, you pass them to the next stage, they're completely handicapped. By the time they get down the road, they don't understand anything. Well, the Arabic tradition is sequential in this way, the Islamic tradition. is it, it, It's really buttressed upon certain knowledges if you don't have them. So these ulum al-ala, the instrumental arts, uh, the most important ones were the trivium that I talked about. Ilm al-Nahu, ilm al-Sarf, matan al-Lughah, al itself, ilm al-Balagha. And then you had things that enabled you to work with uh, legislative derivations. The, what's called usul al-fiqh wa'id al-fiqhiyya. And then you had the knowledge of Qur'an, how to read it, orthography, tajweed, uh, the knowledge of the qira'at, and also uh, the nature of the tafsir of it. Then you had the traditions like the mustarahat al-hadith. If you don't know the terms, you'll have a hard time reading in our tradition because these terms are constantly used. And there, there, there's something what E.D. Hirsch called domain knowledge that is expected of the person when you enter into these worlds. And then, obviously, mantiq. Uh, so so uh, you, ha- you had mantiq, and, and uh, Dr. Khalid Rwayheb has written some really important works on, on logic in the Arabic tradition and, and made some really important clarifications in those works. Um, uh, one of them is the separation of material logic from formal logic, which is a big problem that um, because of Avicenna, uh, so the Sunnis tend not to study material logic anymore, which is a huge disaster. Uh, you have to study the two together. Um, but uh, formal logic, which just deals with you know, the, the validity of your, um, your syllogisms and things like that. But material logic deals with, with the actual matter, the substance of what the premises and the conclusions are made of, um, which is called in one iteration. Now in modern Arabic they actually call "mantaq it al-maddi," but, but it, it doesn't work. I don't think it's a useful translation. It comes coming from us. And then Adab al manādira," which is such a beautiful science. So these were the foundation, and then you moved into the "ulum al like why you studied these. It was in order to study revelation, which hopefully would lead to a Marifa. So you you studied the methodology. And then you studied the sciences themselves, which led to this wisdom. I mean, this was the goal. So I just want to use, this is the tradition that I come from, the Mauritanian tradition. This was my teacher, Marapat Haj. hajj He lived to be 112. Uh, he was an extraordinary man. He mastered uh, the Mauritanian tradition. He, in, in, in the 1930s, he actually walked to Hajj from Mauritania, uh, a journey of 3,000 miles. Um, amazing stories. He 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 re- re- recounted the entire story to me in his tent over several nights. Uh, it was quite stunning to hear it. Um, he was somebody who lived the tradition every night. You know, he had me actually live in his tent, which was difficult because the other students uh, were there. And after about three months, I actually asked him if I could go live with the students because it was getting a little embarrassing. Just uh, Envy creeps in and, and, and things like that. So, but uh, during that time, he always woke up about three hours before Fajr, and he would start his Tahajjud, And he would pray until Fajr uh, every night he did that. And the people that told me who lived with him, he'd been doing that for 70 years. It uh, was very consistent. He's one of the most consistent people. They said that uh, Kant, that they used to uh, you know, set their watches with Kant's walk every day in Konigsberg, Marabat al Hajj was like that. You, you would know exactly what he was doing. He just had a, something that some traditions call sacred monotony. You know, this idea of, of just living, uh, recognizing that it really is Groundhog Day, you know, that life really does repeat itself. And then what do you do with those days that you've been given as they accumulate? There, there's only about 40,000 of them, right? And then they're gone. No, it's actually 20,000. Yeah, I, I was giving you double. <laughs> It's not much. So their tradition, and, and I did not complete it, but I did study in it, so I did study uh, uh, these, some of these texts, like the Ajur Mulhatar arab the Alfia. I did not do the Ihmirar or the Kafiyah Shafiyah. So if you look, in their tradition, they memorize everything. So 114 lines in Ubaidu Rabbihi in the Ajur 375 in Mulhat arab 1,001 in Ibn Malik's text, Ibn Malik's text, by the way, the Alfia, which is now considered advanced grammar, is intermediate grammar. It's intermediate grammar. Uh, it's a, actually an abridgment of Al-Kafiyah Shafiyah, which has 2,793 lines. The Ihmirar, which is al Wal-Buna's additions to the Alfia, is 1,800. My teacher, Sheikh Abdallah bin Bayah, memorizes not only the 600,083 lines in all of these, but shawahid for almost every rule. So we're looking at tens of thousands of memorized lines. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I really am not exaggerating. And I will just give you one example. Somebody sent me a text on ishtiqaq, 700 lines in Arabic poetry, from his teacher, Muhammad Salim al And I was very excited about it. So I, he, was, he was actually staying with us at the time. And I, I came in with the text. And I said, oh, I found something from your teacher. He said, what was it? And I, I read the first two lines, and he said, "Yeah, that's for al ishtiqaq And then he started reciting it by rote, and he said, that, "I remember, I memorized that when I was very young." He said So, and he still had it all there, ready at hand. Uh, I was reading once a book by Af, a Mauritanian scholar in, in Medina, and it was on the. He was a Medina historian, and there was a line of poetry in there, and in the footnote it said. I learned this line from Al Alama Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya uh, in, in the Mahdara when we were students with his father. And he said, This man was unusual in that he never heard a line of poetry that he liked except he went, found the Qasida, and memorized it by rote. Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya told me that, uh, and I know two people that did this, that he memorized the entire Jawahar al Adab of, uh, of uh, Al Hashmi. Uh, Sheikh Khatri will boy, but also memorized that. So it's quite stunning, that memory. We don't have that capacity, but these people do, the Mauritanians. And they really do memorize this. In, in Sarf, they memorize Lamia Tarafaal, Ihmirar of Lamia Terafal. So you're looking at about 195 lines. And then they do Logha, uh, Ilm al-Loha. Muthalaf Qutro, Muthalaf Ibn Malik, Diwan al Jahaliyin. This is in addition to the mu'allaqat. Some of the mu'allaqat are in there, not all of them, but that's in addition to the mu'allaqat. Maqsura ibn Durayd uh, was a beautiful poem. Uh, Diwan Ghailan, very important for them. It's a very difficult poem. The Arabic is very difficult. Maqamat al-Hariri, they memorize the maqamat. Uh, the reason for that is for vocabulary acquisition uh, because there's a lot of really good vocabulary. I actually did read the maqamat, but I preferred... Badi'u Zaman al Hamadani, who I really liked his maqamat. And he had a character called Abul Fath al-Iskandari. And Abul Fath was a, what they call nasab. He was like a religious charlatan. They're all religious charlatans in this genre. But what, what struck me at the time was a little shocked because it was so outrageous. And then I realized that he was really warning people about religious charlatry because there are a lot of religious charlatans. So they've always been around. But he had this character, Abu Fathad Askandari, who was very eloquent, and he would come into uh, like a, a village, and he'd tell all the people, oh, I saw a dream of the Prophet ﷺ, and he said that you are a blessed village, but you haven't had rain for several days, and he told me to do a rain prayer with you. But he made a condition, I had to extend the sajda. And, and they're all like, oh, mashallah, and they all go out, and they do the rain prayer, and they're all in sajda. He gets up, robs all their houses, and then just takes off. You know, it's very interesting uh, genre of literature. You know, like, watch out, right? That, that's the message. Somebody comes and tells you, I saw a dream of the prophet, red flag, right? Yeah, red flag. Keep it to yourself. Yeah. I, I, anytime I hear that, I'm like, uh-oh. Watch out. Be careful. Yeah. Religious charlatans. Yeah, put your hand on the television. Can you feel it, brothers and sisters? Send in that money. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of those. Don't think the Muslims are free of those guys. We just we we have a different kind. You know, yeah. They don't get away with it like the poor Christian people. Yeah. You know, and the beauty of uh, the beauty of the people believe. You know, and, and the grifter knows. This is the the tragedy of the, of the grifter is he knows that human beings are essentially, believers. Like if you meet a guy on a plane, and you're sitting next to him, and, and oh, what do you do? I'm a nuclear physicist. Like yeah, I know you. No, you're not. He you said, wow, that's interesting. You know, because people just why would he tell me he's when he's really a bus driver? Why would he tell me that? But grifters know that. And that's how, they, that's how they get people. And, and the worst are the religious ones. Because they're preying on the beliefs of human beings that are very precious. And, and they're really sinister people. So then we have uh, Balaga. These are the, this is the Mauritanian madrasa. Natham al-Nakaya. I did the Jauhar and maknoon But then they, they go on. al juman nur iqah That's from Sidi Abdullah. So that's about 2,240 lines of poetry. Sulam al-Munawraq, Imam al-Akhdari, beautiful little text in formal logic, 142 lines. They do Jawahar al-Mantaqiyya and then Toshiah al Sulam. So that's their trivium. And then they go into usually fiqh, uh, and they, they have a, this is their, they first, I did the al-Makhdari, al-Mushid, al-Mu'in, the Risari ibn Abi Zaid, and some sections of Khalil. So I went through that minhaj. But they memorize all of them. I did too. I memorized al and Murshid Al-Mu'in. Some of the risala, and very few, little of the Muqtasr. But they memorize all of them. Waraqat al-Imam al-Haramayn in Usul al-Fiqh, Manhaj al muntaqab These are very difficult books in Kawa'id, the Qawaid. And then they do the Quranic sciences. These, they, I'm telling you, they do all of these things and they memorize most of them. So it's, it's really quite stunning. Uh, theology they usually do sughra sughra and kubra muqaddimat wa sirat al saada wadah al mubin so they don't go into the some will read the greater books of aduddin al iji imam al jurjani some will read those the Muaqif and the maqasid and then in ulum al hadith also very extensive uh, in the sirah rabsar i translated that um, and then in Tasawwuf, they read uh, several books. Alhamdulillah, I was able to read all these books. Um, so that's, that's the amount of poetry they memorize, 33,668 when they finish. It's, and they really do, and they retain it. It's quite stunning to see it. This is the reason why, wherever you go in the Muslim world, Mauritanians tend to be uh, the dominant uh, scholars. So in Kuwait now, it's, it's the Shanaqitaq. In Qatar, it's the Shinakita. In the UAE, it's the Shinakita. In Saudi Arabia, increasingly, it's the Shinakita. They're the teachers in the Haram. Um, you, you find them in many, many places. In, in Morocco, too, the Um So this works, and that's why they have leadership is because they went through this tradition. It's a very difficult tradition. It is possible. You don't have to have all the memorization, but I'm going to just wanted to look. I did want to go through this, but I think I've been... It's how, how long? How much time has gone past? Oh, one hour. So I, I think I'll... I was going to go through this nice just to show you a later tradition, and how succinct they became. This is done in... Uh, I read this many years ago. I taught it in Malaysia. It's a beautiful little text, but uh, it's, uh, it just shows you how rich. This was done simply for memorization, but there's an immense amount, many, many commentaries on this text. Um, this is uh, one of the most important books. I wish I knew about this when I first started Arabic. The Turkish and the Kurdish people use this. I once went to a, Turkish, um, a Kurdish bookseller, in uh, Istanbul, he's a friend of Dr. Mashuk's, and he was so uh, eloquent. And I said that, um, I asked him, where did, where did you study Arabic? He said, in the Kurdish madrasa. And then I said, what text did you study? He said, uh, and then he told me, <laughs> All of them are gone except for one metan. And I said, which one? He said, and he said, so I was really impressed with that. Uh, so in any case, this, I was going to go through this just to show you how important it is to learn these things. This is just in harf So in the Mughni, he gives us um, 14 different uses for harf um, for, There's twelve for men. There's all these different types of men. Huh? Well, I'm going to open it up for. Well, okay. we could like uh, so to because I met him, right? Uh, Some say that's for Tabid. That's Imam Shafi'i's position. Imam Malik said. لَيْسَ فِي الْبَاءِ لِلْتَبْعِيدِ So marik actually rejected that. Um, and he actually said it was for Ba uh, Zaida, Which is one of the 14. Ba Za'ida. So you get into differences of opinion and these are very important. This is why in usul they, al-fiqh they go deeply into what are called the Haruf al-ma'ani because this is where the complexity of Arabic really Uh, Gets. I love this. Um, This is a little uh, mnemonic device that they taught students to learn the ten categories of Aristotle. So you can see there. So you have the johar, the substance, zaid. Kam, the quantity, tawil kaf the quality, azraq uh, blue, idafa the relationship. He's the son of Malik, fi Baitihi, the place, bil the time, muttaki, the, the, wada, the 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 position, uh, bi possession, and then Lawahu, action, and then Faltawa, uh, the passive. So those are the ten categories. Let me uh, just, this is very interesting because my argument is that if you do not know the Trivium, you will get lost in our tradition. So I just want to show you one example of this from the opening of Ahmad Zaruq's book on Tasawwuf. He says in that book, To speak about a thing is a consequence of conceptualizing its essence. It's a branch, it comes out of conceptualizing its essence. So tasawwar, he means by that what the manatika mean, the logicians. It's, it's, it's simple apprehension, right? You understand what something is. You understand it's mahiya. You either do this bidihatan or نظر, نظر. You You have to contemplate it discursively or you get it intuitively. The mahia is the quiddity. In fact, there's an argument that quiddity comes quid est is from the Arabic logicians mahiya. What is it? So it's either بالكتساب or bilbadaha. You either get it through acquisition or through intuition. So he's just giving you all these uh, examples of why why that's important. And then he says, ما هي The essence of a thing is haqiqatuhu Its reality, right? This is the foundation of our belief. Like we actually believe that reality is knowable. We're not skeptics. We, We have a realist tradition, not modern realism, but... Pre modern realism. We have a realist tradition. So this is all there. And this is a book on tasawwuf and he's already using and then he goes, so what it's what the whole gives you, the surah, the form of it. What bi the way it's defined is through what's called a had, which means that you know it's the had is, is the it's the it's the like haddus safe. So it's the the finitus. It's the end of something. Definition. Definitus. Out of the end of something. It's to get to real an understanding. So you're looking for jami'un, mani'un. That's the type of definition, a comprehensive definition. Awrasm. This is a logical term, description. Like the human being is described as haywan, natiq, uh, the rational animal. His description is hayawan. Bahik, the risible animal. So, risibility, the ability to laugh, is what they call a property, a proprium. Khasa. It's not arad am, it's arad khas. Like, this is unique. Some say pigs laugh, but uh, his argument, basically, is that this is unique to human beings. It's a property. Like, you know, the essence, if you took a, the head of a triangle, you say a triangle is the genus, the, the gens is polygon. This gets into material logic, because you have... You have the categories, which are the modes of being, uh, that relate to comprehension. Then you have the predicables that relate to extension. And so when you want to say something about somebody, you're going to be using these. These are the ways that you talk about things. And so what he's saying there is that when you want to define something, you want to give it a which is the genus and the difference. What makes it different? So then what does he say? He says So he's saying that the definition Even though it has over 2,000 definitions All of them go back to So the genus then Is an inner directedness The difference is it's to God so he's giving you the definition. So my point is, if you had not studied logic, this would not have made much sense to you. And, and there is a translation of somebody who did not know logic. And when you read it, you'll see how ridiculous your translation will end up being, because you didn't have that tool to study it. I just wanted to use finally, as I, this really is the end. Uh, that, you know, this was from the Creed of Imam Pahawi. I have made mistakes in my translation, so this is in no way to fault people. Um, I, I, I know people could find mistakes in my translations. Uh, we're all learning. Um, the, hopefully, you don't make big mistakes. But, but uh, if you look at this uh, passage, which to me was one of the most difficult when I translated tahawiyah, so al التي يجب من الذي لا أن yusaf al says that amma is key right amma so amma is is you know you have amma and imma so you have to know amma is for tafsil right amma bad you know it's a fasl so amma al this is a different istita'a that he's talking about so you have to understand, as saha." So this translation, the ability required for an action, is from divine facilitation, which cannot be ascribed to a created being. So Minwatofir." So he translates it, "from divine facilitation, which cannot be ascribed to a created being, along with the action itself. Um, so, it's, it's just not right. As for the ability from the view of health, capacity, capability, and sound means, it is before the action itself, and what is related to these are addressed, as it was said by the exalted. And what is related to these are addressed. Again, it just doesn't make sense. Here's another one. And the ability which deeds occur by is simultaneously with the deeds this ability is the one depending on Allah's creation of the ability to do good. These are all published, by the way, which is forbidden to ascribe to creation. As for the ability that is associated with health, capability, mastery, and defect free of instruments, this ability is before the deed, and this is the ability that accountability relates to So that's correct, that, at least the last part. The capacity of a man is of two types. Capability in terms of tawfiq, which makes an action certain to occur, cannot be ascribed to a created being. It's nowhere to say that. It's amazing I don't know where he got that. This capability is integrable with action. The... Anyway, it goes on. The capability in terms of divine grace and favor, which makes an action certain to occur, cannot be ascribed to a created being. This capability is integrable with action, whereas the capability of an action. So here, the, the reason I put that in brackets, even though it's not in there, is that the first istitaa is divine enablement that an act requires. And then when he says, tawfiq, he's really saying, for, an exa- for example, an act of tawf- obedience or an act of disobedience, right? which cannot be attributed to a creature, occurs concurrent with the act. As for the material enablement, so that's a different enablement. That's the amma. That results from health, capacity, poise, and sound means. It precedes the act. In sacred law, it is upon the ladder that legal and moral obligations hinge. And I used hinge because uh, is a hanger. You know, it's related to the word. So I always try to find words like I use capacity because and capacious in Latin, almost identical terms. So it takes a long time to do that kind of translating, but it's really good to try to find those. This is an example of textual corruption that you'll find in the tradition. So this was a fatwa from Mardin. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah was asked about these people that didn't practice Sharia. And he said, Bal qismun tharithun. He was asking about Mardin. So this fatwa was used to kill Sadat. This was in Abu Salam Faraj's book, uh, which told them why they should kill Sadat. This was the fatwa of Mardin that was used. Sheikh Abdullah Bin Bayah held a seminar in Mardin at the time. The fatwa was read. During the fatwa, he said, that can't be right. can't say, yu'amalu, yeah, yu, qatalu, And he, he knew it from balagha. He said, it's not right. He, you wouldn't say, yuqatalu bima yistihqahu. And so he asked uh, to see the original manuscript. And the, and the people that were there, there were some people there from the Gulf who were really upset. They were saying, no, no, no don't change the fatwa. You know. So when, when they got back, he got somebody from the Mechtab al to send them the text. And lo and behold... Inside the text, this is one of the earliest texts written in the, by the hand of Ibn muflih which was one of Ibn Taymiyyah's students. It says, Yu'amalu. It didn't say, Yu'atalu. So, I mean, it's very interesting. Big problem. Big difference. So, Mardin was a huge problem. So, in conclusion... The Muslim education of the Middle Ages is rapidly being superseded by schools and universities, which are both modern and secular. This widespread movement is so recent that it is impossible to tell how it will affect the cultural and social life of Islam. It is clear, however, that in the age of chaotic change, when members of the rising generation are confused by bewildering doubts, the reformers must not neglect the basic principles of medieval education which were a search of of spiritual truth and faith in the reality of Allah. That was the great Bayard Dodge in 1962, who translated the Nasafiya and other works. Uh, And this is a poem, and I'd like to dedicate uh, this talk and uh, this poem to a graduate of Harvard who was one of my mentors who taught at the uh, Zaytuna College I think he's one of the greatest graduates of Harvard University that they they ever had, really. Uh, His name was Dr. Thomas Cleary. He spent six years here as a student on full scholarship. He did his B.A., M.A., and Ph.D. in that time, uh, summa cum laude. And he ended up, he learned Arabic here, but he also learned Chinese and Japanese and ended up translating over 100 works from... Chinese, Japanese, Gaelic, Sanskrit, Pali, Bengali, Arabic, uh, and a few other languages. Um, But he was a really, really, truly great um, scholar. And one of the things that he said that he loved about the language studies here was that it was usually taught by native speakers. And he said, it's very important to have native speakers Uh, because they have an access that people who learn languages as a second language uh, very often don't. And and there there is some truth to that, although there are those rare native learners outside that do that. So I genuinely believe that even though there have been great, great advancements in knowledge, grammar has morphed into linguistics, although the Muslims were on to that many centuries ago, you have extraordinary uh, types of logic that have emerged. Um, Boolean logic, uh, the, uh, Lord Russell uh, introducing with Whitehead mathematical logic, symbolic logic, uh, computer logic, fuzzy logic. Um, you also have extraordinary advancements in mathematics. Uh, rhetoric, um, yeah, I don't think rhetoric has moved that I I would say we've regressed in that area. But uh, in any case, the liberal arts are rediscovered again and again. And uh, this is why Dr. Van Doren called them the seven sleepers, the ones who, like the men in the cave who fell asleep for 300 years. But they are constantly rediscovered, and the people who rediscover them fall in love with them and will spend their lives really trying to learn them and trying to use them and then wanting to see others benefit from these great uh, traditions. He says the liberal arts lie eastward of this shore, choppy the waves at first, then the long swells, and the being lost, oh, centuries of salt, till the surf booms again and comes more land. Not even there, except that old men point at passes up the mountains, over which, oh, centuries of soil with olive trees, for twisted shade, and helicons for sound. Then eastward seas, boned with peninsulas, then orient, the islands, and at last the cave, the seven sleepers, who will rise and sing to you in numbers till you know white magic, which remember, do you hear, O universe of sand, that you must cross and animal the night, but do not rest. The centuries are stars and stud the way. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Sheikh Hamza, for a wonderful lecture. We will now transition into Q&A. If you'll give us a couple of minutes just to switch the stage. Uh, Please prepare your questions. We're going to be putting up a link. If you have a question, you can submit it through that link, and we will have people sifting through and filtering um, and sending us the questions that we deem best. I really encourage you to offer, this is the chance for the public to really engage in this forum, in this symposium, so please offer your questions, and we will try our best uh, to consider them. Thank you.
4: OK. How are you doing? What's that? You should drink water. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. These are fine. Yeah, these
0: are fine. All right. Bismillah ar So we have some questions coming in. We'll start off with um, the questions we have. And then as you guys have questions, please submit them. And like I said, we have a team in the back that is working through those questions and will let me know um, once we have a significant amount. Okay. The first question we have, Sheikh, is how do you view the role of Muslims in guiding the ethical development of emerging scientific technologies, specifically artificial intelligence?
4: <laughs> that's just an easy question, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think uh, AI is, is one of these really interesting events that's happening irrespective of what people think about it. They're just unrolling it. And I think that's one of the problems with a lot of technology is there's not a lot of deliberation or thought that goes into it. Um, Technology is not neutral. There's a lot of simpletons that actually think somehow technology is a neutral phenomenon, and then how we use it uh, is simply up to us. Technologies, by their very nature, have behavior embedded in them. They have also... uh, and power embedded in them. So, if you if you take, for instance, uh, nuclear power, uh, nuclear power is will centralize by its very nature. You you can't have people building nuclear reactors in their backyards, right? Whereas solar power is a decentralizing type of energy. People can have solar power on their on their uh, roofs, and then they get the power. There's people that live off the grid that use there's people live next to rivers and they have these generators that they put in the river and it it generates water uh from the technology so so ai is something i mean i just had dinner i was at the vatican and and i was at a um symposium on ai and i was asked as one of the people to talk about the ethics of ai and um to be honest with you like I'm, I'm studying it now and trying to understand it. Quantum computers is also another area because quantum computing is developing. I mean, they're right across the road, MIT. You know, it's developing at a very rapid rate, and there's going to be this emergence between quantum computing and uh, basic computing that's going to really enhance the power of computation. So I think about the, the, you know, the Kitty Hawk. You know what Kitty Hawk is? Yeah, so, I, anybody, anybody remember Kitty Hawk? Nope. Yeah, the Wright Brothers, thanks. So, so, you know, like about 120 years ago, these two fellows down in uh, the Carolinas, they built a, 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 a glider that had like a, almost like a rubber band type thing, and, and they flew for like 30 seconds or something. And then you think of a stealth jet, or I think of my grandfather who, who saw cars introduced into San Francisco, and now you think of the self driving cars. So when you think of AI now, like they're just introducing it, it's only been around since the 1950s. So where's it going? Well, one person that I talked to, a physicist, and apparently he's a world famous physicist, he told me it's going to eliminate the PhD uh, dissertation, which might be a good idea, you know. <laughs> but he said it's gonna eliminate it in qu- quantitative sciences, that there will not be PhDs in, in that type of research because the AI, it works very algorithmically, but the, the conversation that I had with this man who's uh, head of research at one of the main uh, com- uh, computer, like Microsoft-type place, he told me that the, the computational power now is just so immense and the, the power to imitate And so these machines are learning, you know, through programming, obviously. I mean, there's programming, but they they are learning to imitate, and that's what they're trying to do. So quantum computing is trying to imitate uh, nature. And and so I don't know. Like, I got a call from an AI robot that sounded human. You know, it it initially passed the Turing test. But then I noticed something, and I said are you a robot? And, and it went, ha, 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 do I sound that bad? And, and then I was like, are you a robot? And then it said exactly the same thing, ha, 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 do I sound that bad? And I knew it was a robot. But they're going to work it out where they can, they, they, they it it'll fool you. So I don't know. I mean, I think we should all be very troubled about these things. I'm worried about our young people growing up on all these machines. I've been talking about this since the 1990s. People thought I was crazy, thought I was a Luddite. Uh, I think everybody should read Lice's Under Technology's Thumb. You should read Langdon Winner, who was at MIT, who wrote Autonomous Technology. Read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That's a good place to start. I mean, do we really know what we're doing? And and, and I'm not a believer in, in determinism, in this idea that you can't Oh, no, you can't stop progress. If it's killing you, you should.
0: If I may just ask a follow-up to that question, um, you know, it comes down to this question of life, and, and what is life? If something imitates life, is it life? And what is that distinguishing factor, that definition? Um, as you mentioned earlier in your talk, can you talk to kind of what that definition could well, be?
4: Well, for us, life has to has to be infused by God with a, you know, we have vegetable life, and then we have animal life, and then we have the highest, which is human life, rational life. So, I mean, there is an argument that uh, Arrazi made, Abu Bakr, that even inanimate things have a type of life. And I did read an interesting um, of Imam al-Rifa'i, who was somebody said, that can't be true, and, and then when he, he, he dropped a plate, he heard the plate go, ouch. And they say it was a miracle of Imam rifai So, but there, there is in our tradition this idea of treating things gently, like not throwing things, like pens and anything. So you see Muslims have this concept of adab to creation. Like you have adab to creation, which has been lost on human beings, the way they throw things away. So, so I think... The idea of of A.I. having life or robots having life, I don't don't believe that. They can imitate and look like, you know, the Jewish tradition has the golem, right? So so they could create some kind of golem, but is it life? I mean, unless there was an embodiment of demons or something, who knows? I mean, I don't know. These are all really difficult things because we're all here in the same boat and people have different views about different things. But I would say... You know, that the idea that it's thinking, I don't believe that. I think human beings, I don't, but I could be wrong. Uh, because, you know, if, if you pour water into a cup, is it drinking? Is the cup drinking? You know, is, 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 is the boat swimming, the submarine swimming? You know, I don't know. It depends on how you define thinking. But for us, thinking is, uh, it's, it's, it's a very profound uh, metaphysical uh, t- truth that human beings uniquely think. I mean, we know that animals have some levels of perception and memory even. I mean, Aristotle talks about that. But thinking, the ability to abstract... Adam, alayhi salam was given the ability to abstract what's called tajrid. And, and Fakhruddin al-Razi mentions this in being able to name, which is why Muslims are, are essentialists in that way, that we believe that things do have essences. And that essence is what enables us to talk about universals, the universes, the one in the many. So you're able to particularize, you're able to universalize the particular, which is why, like in logic, it's very interesting, in our traditional logic, we always use singular. And I really appreciate the fact that Dr. Uh, I'm 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 tooting his horn because you guys really have a gem over here. So I just want everybody to know this, but you know when you look at most modern logic books, they they're not written properly because they they make it. There's a fallacy in them. When they in all the traditional Latin and Arabic and Hebrew, they always use the singular. So they don't say all men are mortal. They will always say every man is mortal. They will say some animal is. Because you, you have to particularize the universal in that um, premise, right? So that's what we're talking. The human being has this ability to abstract the one in everything. And that's, that's why we're muwahidun by nature. It's what God has given us. We are designed to see the one in everything. And ultimately, to see the one behind everything. And that's why the, the Arabic word muwahidun means the one who makes one. When we say Allah is one, it's actually we're doing it. Allah is one in reality, but to say Tawheed is a wahada yuwahidu. It's the second form, right? So it's it's a transitive. You are making something one in your understanding. Yeah, and that is unique to the human being, and I don't believe a machine can do that. Although, when I asked um, Mr. Gill, who's, who's a PhD from... Um, mit and and really at the edge of his field on this, I said to him okay if 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 you put all the cats into the into the AI and and then you put like all these different cats said what 's that the a i said oh that 's a tabby what 's that ah oh, that 's a russian blue what 's that that 's a Siamese cat, but then you showed it. A cat where you shaved off all the fur, you cut its tail off, you cut its ears off. Horrible thing to do to a cat, but I'm doing this hypothetically. And, and, and then you cut off his whiskers, and you just showed the, the computer the cat. And I said, would the AI see the cattiness? Would it see the essence? You know, in the same way that as a human, you can see a Chihuahua, and you can see a Great Dane, and I don't know how the mind does that, but you say that's the same thing. Right? So, he said yes, and he said yes, and if that's true, I don't know. It's amazing. I'd like to see it. He might have been just saying yes. to. All
0: right. So, uh, great question to start us off. Let's move on to the next. Um, the next question is, what are some of the main challenges to the Islamic tradition of learning in the Western context? How do you view the contradictions of the Western Academy and its approach to Islamic studies?
4: I think the biggest challenge is Arabic. And there's a very important book called uh, Romancing an, Amer- uh, an American Elite by Kaplan, which was about the inability to produce a really good Orientalist tradition in American academia. Because the Europeans did it. I mean, the Europeans had von S. in Germany. I mean, Van Es probably knew Ashari Kadam better than the vast majority of the... And, I, I, and I'm saying this not because I know Van Ess because I know... Sayed Riyadh uh, uh, who's a brilliant Lebanese philosopher, who was a student of Venice and, and he told me that. So, and then you had people like Arberry. I mean, Arberry really knew Arabic. He knew rhetoric. He knew Arberry's translation of the Quran is amazing. So they, but Americans, I don't know. We we have yet to produce like a really great um, Orientalist tradition, in my estimation. I mean, there are some great. Scholars, Abdullah, Dr. Abdullah Omar Farooq is certainly one of them, and then there's the ones that come from uh, overseas, like uh, Dr. Rawayh and uh, and Wa'il Hallaq uh, who grew up in in you know with Arabic and things. But I think Arabic is a big challenge. Another challenge I think is the academia. You know, we Arabic studies has to allow for devotional, uh, I I think the idea, secularism and secularity that demands on others its own presentation of reality is a type of religious ideology. And I think it's unfair to people who come from a different tradition to impose that. I mean, I used to, when I was in grad school, I used to get these papers saying, you're essentializing. And I was like, I'm an essentialist. Like, like why, why, do I, why is that methodology the only accepted methodology? One of the things that David Berlinsky says, which is really interesting in his book called Human Nature, he said, if you took a modern academic from a European or an American university and plumped him down into 13th century uh, university, like in Paris, and he knows French or, or, or in England at Oxford, In all the dogmatism of that time, he would acclimatize in a few days. But he said, if you took that same academic and put him in Baghdad in the 10th century, he would be in a vertiginous state due to the incredible differences of opinions held by the scholars of that time. And I I really think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, we've become so uh, dogmatic. Uh, in, in, uh, in, in the West about things, that we just assume are reality, and they're not necessarily reality. So I think we... I, I mean, Western academia has some amazing things. I read uh, and benefit greatly from these things. I use JSTOR. I find really interesting things all the time. I mean, I found that about Chauncey uh, on JSTOR. So, I mean, there's some great research and things done, I have a kind of idea of an academic devotional uh, approach, which is where it's, it's, it's academically rigorous, but it allows for devotional expression.
0: So in some sense, how do we allow for knowledge to be a means of, of devotion rather than kind of like an, an act or a vocation?
4: Yeah, I think, I think knowledge for Muslims, knowledge is devotion. I mean, we, our Prophet said one of the signs of the latter days is people will seek knowledge for other than the sake of God our Prophet Sallisim also said that anything that does not begin in the name of God will be cut off from blessings.
0: And it's interesting to see in these university foundations such as Cambridge and Oxford they're and all founded on God and Yale and Columbia, and they're flourishing, and you wonder, is it in its foundation that there is... Um, that
4: well, one of the things that I think our civilization doesn't understand is that they think, a lot of modern people think it was all scaffolding. Religion was just the scaffolding that built all of these. But it wasn't. It was devotion. And, and if you take away the devotion, you lose your, your civilization. And I genuinely believe that every civilization before our civilization had some foundation of the sacred. Even the polytheists you know, had sacred sense of things of ultimate concern. Um, Paul Tillich, who taught here at Harvard, said that... Um, Even the cynic who believes that nothing is sacred holds that as sacred.
0: (laughs) All right, we'll move on to the next question. We have um, students at Harvard who are studying Islam will generally have no training of the liberal arts that you mentioned, uh, even though we are at the liberal arts college. What is your advice to such students already enrolled?
4: Yeah. Grammar is best learned in grammar school. Um, it's unfortunate that it's not taught. There. If you want to understand why, there's a book by David Mulroy called The War Against Grammar. And, uh, you know, linguistics has kind of blown grammar out of the water. There's this idea that um, teaching grammar was not healthy for kids. Um, that also that linguists who are closer to nominalists in their approach to language as opposed to essentialists, who would see, uh, for instance, essentialists would see maybe eight or nine parts of speech. Uh, Nominalists would say that's not true. There are thousands of parts of speech. So that's part of the problem. So when you study linguistics, you're just studying all these names for different things, whereas... When you study traditional grammar, uh, it really helps you understand basic... I mean, an ad, what is an adverb? And knowing how an adverb works is really important. Um, knowing w- how it qualifies and what it qualifies and the dip- different types of qualification. Determiners is probably an interesting word introduced because that's not an earlier word, but that comes out of linguistics, but it is a useful term, a determiner, which would have traditionally been an adjective. Um, So I think learning grammar, I would get a good book on grammar. Kittredge and Farlidge is a really good one. But I would find a good book and just go through it. Um, uh, Sister uh, uh, Marianne Joseph wrote a wonderful book called The Trivium. Eva Brand, uh, a friend of mine and a really, truly great liberal artist who taught many years at St. John's. She's in her 90s now. She said whoever owns that book owns a treasure, and I agree with her. It's a little difficult as a book. There's there's some nice books now coming out, and, and like I said, the these get revived all the time. R- rhetoric is not that difficult to learn. Um, it's some of the when you get into the schemes and figures, the names because they're you know they have all these Greek names like anadiplosis and hyperbaton. You know, Hi- Hyper- hyperbaton is Yoda speak. You know, like so so you can learn. Uh, you know, you can learn that, like Yoda. He'd said, "Much fear I sense in you." You know, that's a hyperbaton. You know, so learning uh, the terms—I don't know how useful that is—but literally knowing the basic, the most important ones, like how alliteration works, what um, you know, uh, the types of in, in Arabic, majaz is very important. And what's called bayan is really important. So you have like majaz aqli, you have uh, majaz uh, logawi, either isti'ar or mursal. And then you have the different types, like sababiyya musababia. These are the problems with modern uh, Arabs in the Muslim world who find all these poems to be like shirkiyat. It's because they never studied balagha. You know, anybody who studied Balagha knows that to swear an oath, when Imam al-Busiri says, uh, munshaki, you know, like I swear an oath by the moon, there's a hadith, what, Busiri knew the hadith, uh, you know, whoever swears an oath, let him swear an oath by God or be silent. That's Mahduf muqaddar, it's well known, you look in the commentaries, it's, it's a rhetorical device. And there are many examples of that. In the Qur'an, there are many things. That, that's there in the Qur'an. But Allah says also, you guide to a straight path. So in one verse, he says, you don't guide. And in another verse, he says, you guide. That's, that's understanding rhetoric. Those will make sense. They're not contradictions. So these are really important tools. At Zaytuna, we, we teach both. So we teach the Western and we teach the... The Arabic tradition. So they do mantiq. If you're going to do Arabic logic and you're a non-Arab, I would recommend doing English first. There are some differences because of Avicenna, but generally um, they're 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 very transparent uh, subjects, especially at the most basic level. So as a follow-up,
0: you know, um, this is in some sense bringing Harvard and Zaytuna together. Can you speak to how Zaytuna? Uh, brings this kind of diversity of thought into its campus, I think we're increasingly seeing that on campuses, uh, you're living in echo chambers, right? Diversity of thought, mm. if anything, is being stifled. Right. So in, ha- in what context is Zaytuna as a university um, allowing for diversity of thought um, in the modern world?
4: Well, I mean, that's a fantastic uh, idea there, is that one, studying, re- revitalizing adab al and wal like, for instance, we have a tradition that there's two types of debate, what's called munadhara and munakara. So, munadhara is, is dialectical, where each, like, if I debate with uh, Dr. Harun Spevek, and we're going to debate whether or not um, the Ash'aris are rightly guided or they're astray. So, 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 so I'm, the, I'm the mu'allil and he's the sa'il, let's say. Like, I'm the proponent, he's the opponent. Or vice versa. In, in monadara, you're supposed to purify your intention. And you want the truth. You're not there to make the other person look bad. And so there's a whole adab of not, you know, of not being, you know, not making fun of them, not laughing if they make a mistake, not just respecting your interlocutor. And it's a beautiful tradition. It was considered fardain on anyone who was in debate. It's a kifaya of the later tradition. You know, it's a collective that some people had to learn it. But for people who debate, it was considered uh, an obligation on them to learn. So that, so, and Munakira is simply where one wants to... It's like the, the raiders. You know, my friend said the problem with Christian-Muslim debates is it's, it's like the Raiders and the, and the 49ers having a, a Super Bowl. You know, when the Raiders beat the 49ers, the 49er fans don't just all say, hallelujah, I've seen the light, I'm a Raiders fan now. They just, ah, we'll get you next time. And that's what happens in those kind of debates. It's not to, to find the truth, it's just to kind of make fun of another person. or so. And then you have Ilzam and Ifham. So... If, if, if the person who's the proponent loses, he's mufham, he's like he has to accept, I was wrong, you're right. And one of the most beautiful statements in our tradition is Imam Shafi. he said, I never debated anyone except that I asked God that he would put the truth on my interlocutor's tongue so that I could submit to it. In other words, that the ego wouldn't have any part in it because the ego wants to jump in there. So I think that would be really nice. We have to allow for debate. We have so many problems now with our community where people don't want to talk to each other anymore. We've taken these dogmatic positions of what's right and what's wrong. If we would restore some basic agreements about things, but we're living in a an age of radical skepticism, a lot of relativism. You know, we have to get back to some foundational truths.
0: So just as a follow-up to that, I mean you mentioned modeling what conflict, diversity of thought looks like through debate. Um, and I think you know, we, we're living in a time where those role models are non-existent, if anything rare. Uh, how do we find those role models? How do we, I mean, I think we can all say you're a role model in that respect. And building, I had the chance to visit Zaytuna, I think it models it in that respect. It is, it is an ethos of sort that penetrates across uh, multiple dimensions in, in the university but how do we find those models in the local communities uh, that we're in right because it it is one thing to teach something and read it in a book and it is another thing to see it lived right so how do we see it lived
4: well we're living in an age where it's a lot the people like the type of people that i saw when i was young i don't see them anymore in all honesty like i i really don't and i know sheikh mashooq can say the same thing you know we we, we saw like sheikh ir you know, the, the likes of that, Sheikh Mahmoud Effendi, these type people, very rare, you know, people um, now. Whereas there was a time in the Muslim world where there were a lot of people like that. So this is one of the tragedies of our time, is that it is getting harder to find, even educated. I mean, we're, we're not educated in in the tradition in any sense. Like, the level that I understand... And le- Between me and Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya or Marab Hajj, there's just no comparison whatsoever. I mean, I cannot compare myself to either of them. And just in terms of of the vast amount of knowledge that they have and the wisdom that they're able to navigate that knowledge with.
0: Can you speak to what wisdom means?
4: Well, wisdom is, you know, hikmah is a beautiful word in Arabic, sophia in Greek. Wisdom... Is, I mean, there are many definitions for it, but generally wisdom is, is when you have a, uh, a sound intu- intuition coupled with you know a, a true understanding, then you 're able to make wise decisions and, and God has given us a rational soul, but the rational soul he 's put this massive neocortex on a midbrain that 's filled with emotions. And on a a, 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 a reptilian stem that 's filled with fear and 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 appetite, and so if we don't learn to navigate that triune brain, uh, then we lose our way and and that takes work and effort, and that's where where virtue ethics is so powerful because. It's something that, you know, habitus can be acquired, but it takes time. And you have people trying to do this out there. You have people like Ryan Holiday is a good example of somebody who's trying to teach people Stoic tradition uh, and popularize it and try to help people deal. Because the ancients, you know, they, they really did have great wisdom. And I think one of the problems with modern people is that they, they, they just don't think we can learn anything from the past. They think because Aristotle's physics was wrong... Oh, it must mean his ethics is wrong. But the Nicomachean ethics speaks to us today. The the, the politics speaks to us today. I mean, the politics has imme- immense wisdom. Set aside what he says about women or what he says about natural slaves and things. You can get caught up in these things. But they are people of their time in some things, and then they are people of all time in other things. And if, if we if we don't learn how to sift um, through, you know, people, everybody has uh, something to teach you, either through. Either th- through a positive or a negative experience. But everybody will teach you something if, if you're open to it.
0: So life is a university.
4: Life is the liberal arts. <laughs> um,
0: all right, we have about 15 minutes before we wrap up, so we'll maybe try to get some other questions. So this is actually an interesting one. So would you still in the modern world of acceptability still give rote memorization the same importance or should the focus move more towards understanding?
4: Yeah, that is a, a great question. Memory is one of the five canons of of Western rhetoric. Hifz um, is really important. You know, the Arabs say "arikab al-hifzi qabla al-jami' min kutubin." For inna al-kutub, for inna al-kutub, for inna al-kutubi afat to farqha. Al-ma'u yuhrqha. Wal-naru ta'hrqha. Wal-faaru well the Mauritanians say like if you if you gather uh, books, uh, you should memorize them because they have certain faults that uh, will will ruin them, and then he says, water and 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 my wife knows, and I know I never put any water near books ever like tea, never don't think you can do it like if if you have a book you have books on a thing you put your cup of tea there it's doomed and and i speak from bitter experience yeah so 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 what and then he says fire will burn them although i'll tell you a true story and god's my witness really god is my witness um many years ago i was with a a a, a person from libya who was a he was a dissident uh, opposing uh, uh gaddafi and i was staying with him and uh and, and we we left the car, and I left two books in the front seat, uh, the Quran. It was leather bound, really beautiful leather bound, and Ibn Abi al Qayrawani. This is like 40 years ago. I was studying uh, the Risala, and and, and uh, doing memorization of Quran, and and Gaddafi, somebody from Libya, they bombed the car, and it blew up. Uh, he lives in Santa Fe. I'm not making this story up. So I was so worried. When we got back to the car, the whole in, inside of the car was burnt up, except for the Quran and the Risālah of Ibn Zayd. Like there was nothing left. It was just thing, and it, and it was paper. It's true story. Yeah, I saw it. People can believe it or not, but I I believe it. I saw it. <laughs> so so th- that's what they said. And then the the rat or the the worm will eat it, and the and the thief will steal it. And Imam al-Ghazali had his famous experience that he tells in his inqad, uh, in his inqad in uh, in, uh, in min al darad that when he, w- he had gone to um, Central Asia and, and learned all this knowledge and had written everything down, and he was on a caravan coming back, and the thief was going to steal all his books. He said, no, no, you can't steal my books. That's my knowledge. And the thief laughed. And he said, what kind of knowledge is that, that somebody like me could steal it from you? And and Imam al-Ghazari said, It was God who made him speak. And he said, after that, I never learned anything except that I put it to rote memorization. So while I think our society has gone to the other extreme where memorization is not important, you could look it up but don't we know that the best teachers we have tend to be the ones with the most prodigious memories, the ones that seem to retain a lot of things? I mean, that's just our experience. So memory is a beautiful thing. It's one of the gifts. It's best done in what uh, uh, Dorothy Sayers, in her famous essay on the liberal arts calls, uh, on the trivium, calls the parrot stage. Uh, Memory is best done when children... I, I had my children memorize a lot of things and poems and things, and, they, and they, like my son, when he was in college, he went to uh, Amherst, and uh, he was with his college friends, and they were there. And I had made him memorize a lot of Emily Dickinson. So he was there reciting all this Emily Dickinson poems, and they were all shocked <laughs> at it. But it was a very memorable experience for him and for the other young men that he was with. You know, there's something beautiful about having a poem in your heart. You know, they say, I memorize it by heart. You know, it's, it's 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 very powerful. You know, I mean, I the the the, the poem of uh, it's the most famous poem quoted in in, uh, in or anthologized in, in, in American poetry. Two woods diverged, in a yellow wood. sorry, I could not travel both, and be one. Travel long, I stood to where I bent to the undergrowth. That that poem, which I memorized many many years ago, because my dad memorized a lot of poetry. I've thought about that poem a lot. And uh, I was walking once with my wife, and we came to a split in the woods. And the poem came to mind, so I s- started reciting it. And, um, and I had read a whole book on this poem, which I hated, because I thought the guy completely misinterpreted the poem. But, but I was thinking about what that poem meant, and then, and then I realized what it meant, you know. When, he's, when he repeats the I, you know, I... I took the one that's traveled by. I realized that that poem's about free will and that that's what he was saying that makes the difference of being human is actually actualizing your free will because most people are on a kind of default setting. That's my interpretation. Somebody else could come with a different one. But had I not known that poem by heart, I could not have had that experience. Yeah, so... And that's happened to me many times. I was I was with my boys once. We were there, and 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 we we were sitting, and there was a man, there, a young man, a little older than they were. And I asked him what he was doing. He said, "Ah, eh, nothing much. Just kind of, you know, just uh, taking some time off." I said, "Are you going to school?" He said, "I'm thinking about. it. I don't know really what I want to do, uh, but I'm just you know kind of playing around." That's what he said. So when he left, I read to my boys. Be strong, we are not here to play, to dream, to drift. We have work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle, face it, it is God's gift. You know, so that was, like, they memorized that poem. So I, I really feel like memory is a beautiful thing. It's an important thing. And uh, I still, I, I memorize every day something. Every day. I don't, I don't let a day go by without memorizing something.
0: Yeah, no, that's, uh... I have so much to think about personally um, about memorization in that context. And I think to, to kind of circle back to AI, is AI kind of removing that effort that it takes to kind of retain and, and um, hold on to to wisdom, to truth? So um, we have several questions in here, um, and I'm trying to pick what I think would be most well, and, and I want to be... Um, respectful of these questions. So one of the questions is, is it not beneficial to to bypass the tradition to escape the biases of the past that have become so solidified? I
4: mean, that's a great question. There's no doubt that there are things in the tradition that need to be jettisoned. It's who has the wisdom to determine because people can follow their own passions and want to get rid of things that are... So I think the challenge of our generation is determining what is what I would call, I mean, this is not a popular word, but what I would call transhistorical, Those things in the tradition that are trans-historical, that transcend every time and place, and then those things that are of their time and place. Mm. So I think that's really important. But I think, for me, renovation is the key because I, I really genuinely believe the house is solid, but you know the pipes are rusty, the plumbing needs replacement, you know, the, the the faucets aren't working anymore. But you don't destroy the house and kind of try to rebuild something new. So I, I really think that, um, I mean, this is a beauty. We just read in my book club, we read uh, The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. And one of the most important things that he points out in there, and he at the, at the very end of that book, he has all these traditions, saying very similar things. So I really do believe there are universals that are very important that all of us share. Identifying those, what we call an, an, a thawabit in Islam. You know, those things that are fixed. And then there's the mutagayarat, those things that change with time and place. So I think Sheikh Abdul bin Beyya is one of the few people that I know that is capable of navigating that because he's, he's a, such an encyclopedic master of the tradition, and yet at the same... I mean, I'll give you an example. I was asking him about, um, uh, about um, canceling culture, you know. That was very interesting. Like, I was asking him about people that feel hurt or sensitive. And he just started talking about darar and the concept of darar. And he said, you know, the, the basis of our tradition is la darar wa la darar. Don't harm people and don't reciprocate harm once it was done to you. And he said people should be sensitive to other people's uh, concerns, you know, sensibilities, really. You shouldn't go out of your way to offend people, which some people really enjoy doing. And then he said, but, at the, and then he said, but on the other side of that, he said our tradition t- teaches us, يقولون, be patient with what they say. You know, and, and uh sabrun wallah musta'an, you know, all those things about like not taking offense, you know, at taghati, at The Prophet talked about taghafal, you know, pretending not to understand. And one of my favorite hadiths is when they called him mudammam, which means the blameworthy, is in Al Bukhari. He said, Isn't it wondrous how God has removed their tongues from me? they call me, they, they're calling someone named Mudammam and I'm Muhammad. So it's like he just didn't give them any reality, as opposed to these Muslims, like, flipping out at the slight, this poor woman in Minnesota or somewhere with the painting. You know, I mean, what's going on, like, where Muslims have become so sensitive? She wasn't denigrating. If you don't denigrate the Prophet, tanqis is one thing, but she was showing Persian art written by a scholar. There's a difference of opinion. It's a very weak opinion, but there is an opinion. There's actually a hadith, Imam uh, Ibn Kathir relates, of the man who uh, Hisham Ibn al-Aus, who was sent by Abu Bakr to Syria, and, 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 and he met Herakal and Herakal took him into a room and pulled out these, these uh, boxes that were covered with black, and each one he took out a, 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 a statue and the first one, he said, Do you know who that is? He said, No, he said it's Adam. And he looked at it amazed. He said, At long neck. And then he took the next one, he said, Do you know who that is? He said, No, he says Ibrahim. And then the next one he took out, He said, Do you know who that is? He says, Musa. And then finally he gets to, Do you know who that is? He said, That's my prophet. That's Muhammad. And it was a statue of the Prophet. And it, this is in Bayhaqi and Darayl al Nabuwa. Uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal relates it. None of them condemned the taswir. Not one of them condemned the tasweer. Abu Bakr, it say, and, and Ibn Kathir says, Hadi riwaya la ba sabiha. And, Ibn, and it's mentioned, in many, many scholars mention this. Ibn, uh, the Hisham said when he told Abu Bakr, he wept. To, to, to hear that. So in the Maliki Madhab, uh, even a statue, as long as it's not three-dimensional, it's only one side, of a person, it's makruh. It's not haram. The Maliki's are the most lenient on uh, pictures, and that's why, like, if it's abstract, it's permissible. Like abstract sculpting would be permissible in Sharia. Um, so, like, on the fres in the 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 the, the Washington D.C. at the Supreme Court, you know, there's a a symbol there of of the symbolizing the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu I don't want to see that taken down. But there's Muslims saying, ah, this is, you know, speak for your own, like, you speak for yourself. You're not speaking for all Muslims. They honor, that wasn't for Tanqis, it was for Ta'lim. They're saying he's one of the great lawmakers in the world. And it's not the prophet. You know, the pipe. you know, the famous Magritte picture of the pipe that says this is not a pipe. You know, a, a picture is not the thing. Don't, don't get caught up. So we, we, you know, we have that problem in, in our community. We, we need more maturity.
0: All right, we'll wrap it up with, with two more questions. Um, the one here, and I'm going to let you take it as you wish, but I, um, I would like to ask it on behalf of whoever did ask it. Um, in our hyperpartisan society, how do you recommend American Muslims engage with the political system in this country, particularly as our faith does not align with either political party?
4: Right. I think it's important for Islam not to be associated with a party. I mean, it's, it can't be Democratic, it can't be Republican. Um, I think we should learn from our Jewish brethren and sisters. The Jewish community, uh, when, when I went to Russell Moore's Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Dr. Sanusi and I were the only Muslims there. I and mean, they had on the table like books like uh, Islam and Satanism, and I mean, it was pretty bad, you know. But anyway, we went. And they gave me an opportunity to talk, and we, they had one man who'd written a book against Islam, and he gave his thing, and I said, I'm sorry. You know, I've spent my life studying this religion. The type of stuff you're talking about is just wrong. And, and I refuted it. And uh, But w- then we went to shoulder to shoulder. But my point is, is, in that meeting, there were Orthodox rabbis. Then we went to shoulder to shoulder the same day, which is a more... Um, Left-leaning group. And then there were the liberal rabbis there. And so I think Muslims are foolish to kind of condemn people on one side, and, and you know they should recognize that it's good for Muslims to be in you know, they say if you're, if, you're, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. You know, it's a high possibility. So it's always good to have Muslims present. You know, I was lucky, you know, I met uh, Dr. Marianne Glendon, who's, who's a professor emeritus from Berkeley but I was one of the commissioners with her. And I genuinely believe the fact that I was in that room, conversations changed. Because if there's no Muslims in there, then they can say things about Islam that when there's a Muslim there. I mean, one of the, our traditions is whenever you're going to talk about somebody, to imagine them in the room, just to avoid backbiting, you know? So, so it's the same idea. If you, if you have a Muslim present, it's very good. That's why I'm glad there's Muslims in... In Harvard, we should we should have Muslims in all over. It's a globalized world. The Muslims aren't going away. We've been here. We've been here from the start. You know, so there were Muslims in America early on. Um, we had we had that beautiful Fulani man um, who uh, who Mahmoud, you know, who in Georgetown used to walk reciting Quran. They said he used to walk, and that's the way the West Africans do it. They walk at night after Maghrib and do their. They call them surats. You know, they recite the, and he made his own Fulani hat and everything. Beautiful man. He was here. Uh, Peel, the great uh, painter who painted George Washington, painted him. He said originally he intended to spend one day with him. He ended up spending like several days with him because he enjoyed him so much. But he was here from the start with the Founding Fathers. We have uh, people on the rosters, Muslims, that fought in the Revolutionary War with Americans. They're on the rosters. Their names are on the rosters. So, Islam is an American religion. It's always been here. We had an American captain, uh, uh, Bafus Muhammad, who was a Civil War captain. He's the highest ranking Muslim in the Civil War. He was African American. So, Muslims have been around. They've been around. Not going anywhere. We're actually good neighbors, generally. I mean, there's crazy Muslims, but there's crazy everything. You know, like I mean, some of the worst human beings are, don't believe in anything, right? I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer, like, what did he believe in? You know, eating your neighbor? <laughs> yeah. Alhamdulillah. Barakallah fikum. It's been such a pleasure. Is that, that was the last one? I... That, we can call it the last one. Uh, yes. Was there one more?
0: There is um, one that I will wrap it up with if you'll answer one more. Okay. And that is so someone asked, and I I hope this can maybe be important for this person, but they said, um, is God dead? And to to add on to that question, yeah, what is the role of love? How do you get to know God through love? How yeah. do you love the prophet sure. in that and the time? I don't think we're not taught that in some yeah. context. So just the relationship with, between God right. and love and, and mm-hmm. if you could speak to that as a yeah. final kind of concluding remark.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, that obviously comes from uh, Nietzsche, who was a very interesting character, uh, who, you know, I guess it was 1882, maybe, in the, in the Gay Science. Yeah, I think so. Was it The Gay Science? Is, uh, I, I, he said it in Zarathustra, uh, but I think he said it before that in The Gay Science. Yeah? Yeah, okay, thanks. Michelle, That's Zaytuna representing right there. Ah, <laughs> So, so, so you know. So God in in in, in 1900 said Nietzsche is dead. Yeah. So. <laughs> so anyway, you know. <laughs> um, I, look, I mean, God can die in the hearts of people, and and that's a tragedy, you know. And and that's why I mean Abu Bakr said that amazing thing when they were all when the Prophet ﷺ died. He said, "In kuntum ta'budun." you know if, if you worship Muhammad he's dead, but if you worship God, God is living and never dies so I think you know it's it's a choice everybody has to make it's it's an amazing choice you you choose on meaning or you choose on meaninglessness if you choose on meaninglessness obviously you can attempt some existential way of finding meaning in your life. Some people do it through literature. Some people do it through music. Some people do it through gluttony, hedonism, sexuality. There's lots lots of ways to fill the void. But they're all empty, and, and they never lead to satiation. Um, and it's our belief, As Augustine said, you know, that God uh, created our hearts so that they would only rest in God. And so the heart, by its very nature, is restless until it finds God. Uh, Rumi talks about the the grain in in, in the oyster that irritates the oyster and, and finally becomes a pearl. That he says that's what's in the human heart. There's an irritation uh, which, until we find God, uh, we don't we don't uh, we're not at peace. So I think. I think there's a lot of interesting evidence now. I'm a big fan of Stephen Meyer uh, and and some of the people that are doing cutting edge um, microbiology and the idea that the evidence for design is not like the old kind of creationist school of design from Seattle, that the evidence for design is becoming pretty overwhelming. Uh, So Theistic uh, Evolution is a really interesting book edited by Stephen Meyer. And I think uh, these are areas where Muslims and Christians and Jews and people that do believe in God can, uh, can really uh, look to as sources. The Muslims never tried to prove God's existence. What they, what they wanted to do, and in in Aquinas' five ways, were never meant to prove God's existence, in my estimation. What they were meant to do... Is to show believers that it is a rational proposition to believe in God. It's not irrational. And but but it's 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 not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not it's you know, in 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 our legal system you have criminal evidence and then you have civil evidence. Civil evidence, the best of it is clear and compelling evidence. That criminal evidence is beyond a reasonable doubt. For Allah has made the world so that. He's given us clear and compelling evidence, but it's, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. He, it's left there for faith, and that's the difference. But I do think it's a, it's a stronger proposition, and that's why that's the one I'm, I'm on. I'm on that side. Thank you so Thank much, you much for all the patience, and may Allah bless all of you. I really appreciate it. <laughs>
1: Thank
2: you. Um,
0: so really quickly... We'll have a du'a, but uh, I want to quickly acknowledge some people in the room. Um, we have uh, the, the wife of Sheikh Hamza with us, who is a pillar uh, to our community as well, and who has offered us all support through the, <laughs> through the support she offers, Sheikh Alhamdulillah. We have Dr. Subhani, the vice president of Harvard, joining us as well with her husband. Uh, and we have Dr. Omar and Sheikh Mashouk with us also here from, from Zaytuna. So please grant them one more round of applause and a welcome on behalf of Harvard. <laughs> And finally, I'd like to have Chapman Khadid offer a closing du'a. Uh, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi
3: wa barakatuh. Um, let's uh, close with a quick uh, du'a together, a quick prayer. Audhu billahi ash rajim rahim ya Allah. We praise you. We ask for your blessings, your guidance. We ask that you bind our hearts. We ask that you make us purveyors of knowledge, students of knowledge we ask that you endow us with wisdom with character with love and allow us to be excellent stewards of this knowledge to serve our teachers and our parents and our loved ones and to make us uh, guiding lights uh, for ourselves in this life and for others as well for in this life and in the next amen Rabbil alamin wa sallallahu sayyidina muhammad wa ala wa sahbihi ajmain Salam alaykum wa peace and blessings be with you